Well, welcome to Christmas on Sunday. Yeah. Doesn't happen very often. Let's just take a moment and kind of capture this moment. You know, I was listening to Mike and Jody reading the scripture, and I thought to myself, if we just sang those three hymns, those three songs, and just heard that scripture read to us, and that was it, that would be enough today. Uh, just so good to hear from his word, just plainly read. Thank you both for reading this morning. Um, and here we are on Christmas Sunday. And yet we do have a message this morning. It's the fifth in our Advent series. But I want to ask you this morning a little bit of a show of hands. How are you handling all the Christmas stuff, right? The, the gift giving and dinner and all that. So how many of you did all your Christmas traditions and gifts and everything yesterday on Christmas Eve? It's, it's already done. Okay, there are several of you. How many of you are still doing everything today, but you did some things this morning, and now you're here at church, and you'll finish this afternoon and evening? Ah, a lot of those. Okay. And how many of you, like our family, are completely punting to tomorrow as if it were Christmas Day? Anybody in the room doing that? Uh, one. Oh, that's my kid. <laughs> Interestingly, I was telling my son, uh, one of my boys, that, that tomorrow is actually the federal holiday of Christmas Day Observed, so... It's all good, however you choose to, uh, to approach it. But, you know, I want to tell you what's coming. How many kids do we have in the room? We'll say under 12 or under. How many kids in the room? There's a, yeah, nice try. 12 or under. Yeah. Okay, there's several. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a Debbie Downer here, uh, but this is also to the adults too. Here's the deal. When you finish opening the presents under the tree or whatever your tradition is, like if we were to open all the presents on stage, you get to that moment and you open the presents, there's this moment afterwards, right, after all the paper and the box and everything's sitting there where you go, ah, oh. right? There's this letdown moment where it just doesn't quite deliver what you'd hoped. All the bright, vivid colors and all the excitement and the anticipation, and you get to that moment and everything's open, and you realize there's something in me that this didn't quite satisfy, right? There's this longing in us where the anticipation actually carries more emotional weight than the moment after. Now, even if you've received something that you were really hoping for, that you're really excited about, or maybe you gave a gift that you were really passionately excited to give to that blessed person, that might last a little while, maybe a couple months, maybe a year, but there will come a time where it just doesn't deliver anymore. Uh, in our family this year, one of the gifts that we gave was a couple days ahead of Christmas was we kind of uh, did a complete remake of our rec room where the kids hang out. And so we moved furniture, we cleaned, we installed some LED lighting, we put a new TV in there, and it's cool. It's a warm space. We actually watched my favorite Christmas movie, uh, the musical version of Scrooge from 1970, in there last night. But I'm telling you, in six months or probably less, we're just going to be like, it's just a room. It's not a big deal. Because, you see, there is this uh, longing in us. We've kind of been hitting on this theme all throughout Advent that can't be satisfied by gifts under a tree. And we'll hit that point again even this morning. So today we're focusing on real hope. The hope that comes in the gift of Jesus. The arrival of Advent. And we're going to focus on God as a lavish gift giver. And I'm going to use a little bit of a different word this morning. We're going to use the word ridiculous. And I don't mean that irreverently. I think you'll see why. But that God is a ridiculous gift giver. That he gives us Jesus and then he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives. And so, kids, you can repeat with me our big point. God is a ridiculous gift giver, okay? So this morning, I'm kind of surrounded uh, on stage by, we've changed our stage set a little bit to reflect that, the lavish, ridiculous, gift-giving nature of God. 
And so we're surrounded by gifts this morning to illustrate that point. Now, before we dive in this morning, I want to uh, make a special welcome today to our guests from Adult and Teen Challenge. We have, I think, over 30 men and one sister here this morning. Could we give them a rousing GBC welcome? I was so excited about how this all came together and so grateful that you can be here worshiping uh, with us. We're, we're just blessed having you with us, and uh, so thank you for being here. If you're also a guest, maybe you're tuned in online this morning uh, and you're visiting with us or you came with family, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, as, a, as a way of kind of bringing us all up to speed, for those of you that are newer or guests or it's your first time, and those who've been with us on this journey through Advent, we've been using this little book by Sinclair Ferguson called The Dawn of Redeeming Grace. It's a uh, 24-day devotional through Advent. And we've had four messages to this point. This morning's message actually doesn't come out of the book. It's a fifth message. But I want to take us back or introduce us by way of bringing everybody to the same place uh, to, the, the, to where we've been thus far. So in the first week on December 4th, we looked at the heritage of Advent. We looked at, in the baby Jesus coming, that God surprises us with his grace. And he allows us a new start. That is, you may remember, or if you weren't here, we looked at the names of Jesus', Jesus genealogy in Matthew 1. That so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so and so on. And that all of those names listed are there for a purpose to illustrate, among other things, that God surprises us with his grace, with even who's in his family line. That he welcomes outsiders into his family, people that we wouldn't expect. And he is Jesus ushers in a new genesis. He allows for a fresh start. And some of us needed that message that week. And the second week, our youth pastor, Jeremy Vorse, helped us wrestle with the family of Advent, looking at uh, Mary and Joseph in particular, that in the baby's coming, that God invites us into his family. Just as Mary and Joseph were the first that were invited into Jesus' family, he even invites us. We left here that day, if you remember, uh, with a key. And this key was to symbolize, to be a physical reminder to me and to you that I'm invited into the family of God because of what Jesus came and what Jesus did. Our third message was brought to us by our, uh, one of our elders, Brandon Barnes, and wrestled with the journeys of Advent. And that in the coming of the baby Jesus, that God works in us and teaches us, particularly in our journeys in life, our times of exile or sojourn or struggle or trial, that he speaks to us particularly in those moments. And he speaks to us of three things about himself. Number one, his presence, that he's a God who comes near. He's not a God who is distant and far away. He comes near through the birth of Jesus. That he's a God who is a protector. He is in control of all things, even when my life might look like it's out of control. And finally, he is a God who keeps his promises. And Zach touched on this last night as well. He is a faithful God. Last night, if it feels like you were just here, it's because you were. <laughs> and our associate pastor, Zach Stevens, took us through the visitors to Advent, looking specifically at the wise men. And that in the coming of this baby Jesus, God presents us with a hope that was not what we expected. That God's plan is perfect, but it was not what we expected. And we looked at several examples throughout the scripture and throughout the life of Jesus, as Zach led us, in terms of how Jesus 
blows up our expectations. We're going to kind of hit on that again this morning, by the way. So that brings us to our fifth message this morning, the arrival of Advent. And as I said already, we're going to see that in the coming of the baby Jesus, God reveals, and what the, the baby Jesus comes to do in particular, that he is a ridiculous gift giver. Now, if you know, in, in our little summary here, every message has language of invitation or of something that God wants to do in us or wants to work in us, but we have to choose to receive what God wants to do. Just like a gift that needs to be received and to be opened in order for us to enjoy the benefits of that gift. Over a month ago, our caring pastor used the illustration that if someone were to give you a car, let's say it was the car of your dreams, the one that you'd been saving for, and they, they came into church and they said, hey, I, I actually bought it for you. It's in the parking lot. Here are the keys. And you said something like, I'm all set. I, I want to earn this one on my own. I've been saving. I want to wait till I can buy it. You would then not enjoy the benefits of that free gift. Even if your name was on the title, you have to own it and receive it. So we'll come back to that theme as well. So we're going to be wrestling with a few themes this morning as we consider the arrival of Advent. But before we look at our three points, I want to tell a Christmas story. This story comes from Christmas Day in 1863. It's a long time ago. It's actually near the end of the Civil War. And it concerns Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Now some of you may have seen the story of Longfellow uh, as presented by the Gospel Coalition this Advent season. But Longfellow, who was a, an American poet and thinker, among other things, found himself on Christmas morning in 1863 in this place of deep reflection and consternation, wrestling with a bunch of stuff that were going on, was going on inside of him because of things that had happened in his life and what was happening in our country at the time. And so before we get to Christmas morning, 1863, we need to back up to the spring of 1861. When Longfellow's wife, in a tragic accident, burned to death as her dress got caught fire. And Longfellow himself desperately tried to save her by putting out the fire such that he was burned so significantly that he was unable to attend her funeral just a few days later. And he entered this season of grief over his wife who'd left him. They'd had six children but lost an infant child at one point and left him with all the children. And he was at this place of deepest grief where he feared he would be institutionalized and put in an asylum because his grief was so deep and so severe. Earlier that spring, or, or a couple years later rather, in the spring of 1863, his oldest son Charlie unbeknownst to the family, hopped on a train and headed to D.C. and enlisted in the Union Army to fight in the Civil War. His family didn't know. He received a, a commission as an officer, but then shortly thereafter came home with what was probably typhoid fever. And he was severely ill for most of the summer and was cared for at the home. But by August of 1863, he rejoined his unit. Fast forward to December 1st, 1863. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was at home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, eating dinner, and he received a telegram. Now, kids in the room, a telegram is like a text message from the 1860s, okay? And probably is why the, the Union won the war, but that's a topic for another day. He received a telegram that his son Charlie had been shot in the face in a battle in the South. And so he and one of his boys 
hopped on a train and headed down to D.C. to care for her son, who is now in Virginia. As it turned out, his son had actually been shot in the, in the shoulder. The message had been relayed uh, incorrectly. But he was nearly paralyzed, and doctors predicted that within a short amount of time, he would be paralyzed. And so he came home to recover. And so now it's Christmas morning, 1863, and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, suffering the loss of his wife just a couple of years earlier, left with the care of his children, his son's severe illness over the summer, and now deeply wounded with an uncertain future, not to mention a country at war within itself. He found him pl himself in a place of deep and somber reflection that Christmas morning. Mentally and emotionally, at that point, he turned his attention to what we're calling this morning the arrival of Advent. Now, we'll come back to Longfellow in a little bit, but it necessitates a question for each one of us. And I want to ask you this morning, how do you come to Christmas morning? What griefs do you carry today? It could be that you carry the angst of looking at the world around us and even the deep division in our own country and you carry this burden with you. It might be that in 2022, you've been hurt and wounded personally by someone that you trusted or a relationship has become strained or even broken. Perhaps you come with the burden of shame this morning for some dastardly thing that you've done or the way that you've treated others. Maybe you lost someone this year. How do you come to Christmas morning? I want to mention this morning our dear friends Dan and Darcy Flight. If you don't know Dan and Darcy, they've been here at this church for decades. They're dear friends. This past week, they lost two parents. On Sunday, a week ago today, Dan's father, Don, died. Don was a wonderful, gentle, godly man. And it was actually on the anniversary, the nine-year anniversary of the loss of Darcy's mother. And then on Tuesday, Darcy lost her stepmom, Carol. Again, a wonderfully sweet, believing woman. And she whom I'd mentioned in my message just a couple of weeks ago. The flights are carrying a burden of grief. They're processing the arrival of Advent a little differently this year. I want to remind us that there are not just the flights but others like them. That we need to be praying for and reaching out to and caring for. What is the grief that you carry this morning? Maybe today is just amazing and wonderful and everything's going great. And that's fantastic. Then we ought to share the burdens of those that aren't in that place. And so I want to open us with prayer this morning. Then we're going to look at three points and dive into some scripture. Let's pray together. God, we approach your arrival this morning with all kinds of thoughts and emotions and feelings. There's the excitement that it's Christmas morning and all the family traditions and the warm fuzzies that come along with that. But Lord, there's also recognizing that you entered a sinful world. And that until you, until you return to reign and rule, Jesus... It's still a broken place. And Lord, we are a part of that. We struggle with our own brokenness. Lord God, I lift up my brother Dan and my sister Darcy and their family. I ask that you would bring them comfort and that peace that Paul teaches passes understanding. It's incomprehensible. It's, it doesn't make sense by human terms. But it's what you give in Christ. And so, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, as you can, we consider these themes of your arrival, would you speak to each heart here this morning, those listening online, those in the room? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do we come to the arrival of Advent? What would the scripture teach? How are we to approach this day? I think there's a myriad of answers to that question. We'll just, we'll, we'll just try to hit on a couple. 
And we're going to jump around a little bit this morning. We're going to be in the Gospels looking at some of the scriptures that Mike and Jody read. We're going to be in Paul's letters and a variety of other places. The first way I want to submit to you that we are to come to Advent, to the arrival of Advent, is with haste and joy. And then secondly, as we'll see from Paul, with the attitude that Jesus above all else. Haste and joy, Jesus above all else. And then we're going to wrestle with this idea that we come to Advent with what is perhaps the second greatest gift that God gives us. And I'll unpack that in a little bit. So first, let's look at haste and joy. This comes right out of our readings in, in the, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Matthew. It's, it is the arrival of Advent. Matthew makes the point that the king is born. And he's going to make the case throughout his gospel that Jesus the king meets a need that we've talked about in the beginning with the idea that presence can't satisfy something that's deep within us. That his coming brings a hope that doesn't exist apart from him. Does not exist apart from him. There's no other way to bring the hope that Jesus brings. But that his hope, that the need that he meets, puts a call on me. That there's an expectation for each one of us to respond to Jesus' coming. If you've come to church this morning or you're watching online this morning, that is ordained of God and you must respond. And so Luke and Matthew give us two models of that. In Luke, as Mike and Jody read, Luke 2, the shepherds, it says, hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. The shepherds, it says, hurried off. If you have a King James Bible, it would say the shepherds made haste. And if you're young this morning, you go, what does that phrase mean? It's how you go to the Christmas tree when you wake up on Christmas morning. You make haste to the Christmas tree. Some of us make haste to the Christmas dinner. But we're to approach the arrival of Advent with that same sense of rushing. The shepherds, when they heard that angelic announcement that the Christ child was born and they saw the heavenly hosts worshiping him, they dropped what they were doing and they made haste to the manger. That brings us to the wise men. We spent a great deal of time on them last night, but coming back to two verses that Zach looked at, it says, when the wise men saw the star, they were overjoyed. They were overcome with joy. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. The shepherds make haste. The wise men later, as they come, as they put all the pieces together and they see the star again, they're overcome with joy. Again, that's how we come to the little traditions that we enjoy so much. And Matthew and Luke would compel us that how we receive the arrival of Advent is to make haste and to experience joy. I wonder, as I've asked of myself this morning, if you approach the arrival of Advent in haste and joy in the same manner as whatever your favorite tradition of Christmas is. In a recent devotional, Paul Tripp said it this way. He said, we give and receive gifts as we give and receive gifts. Remember that salvation is a free gift. The hope of your life will never come wrapped in paper and placed under a tree. The gift of life was wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a manger and would later hang on a different type of tree. And that brings us to our second point. We're to approach the arrival of Advent with haste and joy because as Paul compels us, it's to be Jesus above all else. Jesus above all else. What a challenge to me in my life. And this will bring us to our key text this morning, just a short passage from 
Paul's letter to the Philippians. And Paul is writing from the vantage point of his own experience and and exhorting believers all the way down to you and me today to respond to Jesus in this manner. He says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that is trash or garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or from being good or for giving money to the poor or for coming to church, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Paul comes to know and understand at least three things and we'll look at them in turn as he teaches and exhorts the Philippians in this letter. Number one, he came to know that as knowing Jesus as his Savior and Lord was greater than his greatest accomplishments in this life. Why would Paul be willing and desire to know Christ above all else? Because he had accomplished the height of success in his life and in his world and measured by the standard of his world. And if you go back and you take the time to read verses 5 and 6, he kind of gives his resume. He says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was born into the right tribe and family. I was educated by the right people and sitting under Gamaliel. I experienced the right, I I walked out the right behaviors. I was zealous for the law of God, even to the point of, of persecuting the church. I did everything to reach the heights of being a zealous Jew. And yet, he considers it rubbish. I wonder where have you been successful in your life? Speaking to maybe more like middle-aged people this morning, where have you reached those goals and successes? Maybe you've parented your kids and they've all turned out great and they're wonderful young people and you feel as a mom or a dad, I've done my job. I've reached the heights of parenting. Or maybe you've reached a place in your career where you've, you've reached the apex, the goals that you had, and you're recognizing the next step is to work your way toward transitioning and retirement. I wonder, do you prize Christ more than those successes? Do I prize Christ more than the successes of of my life. You see what Paul wants us to understand and what generations of Christians would teach us or speak to us from beyond the grave if they could is that that success won't deliver that hope and need that we've been talking about. And if you've been wildly successful, you already know this. Right? You reach that promotion that you thought you wanted your whole life, that you pursued all the way from beginning in college when you chose your major, and you get there and you realize, this doesn't deliver the way I thought. Or you find that perfect spouse, and, and you realize marriage doesn't deliver in the way that I wanted it to. On and on we could give of examples in this regard. And here's the deal. Here's the, the, the secret young people in the room That when Jesus is the prize, when it's Jesus above all else, what Paul is saying is that your dreams of fulfillment of that career or perfect relationship or a perfect uh, circle of friends, you find joy in those things. We come back to that in our second point here this morning. Paul understood that knowing Jesus was greater than the greatest successes in life. Because he understood that knowing Jesus gave him right standing with his creator. 
He understood that because of Jesus, he was at peace with God. And what's really driving all that sense of need and hope and longing that we have been talking about is that I'm desperate to be at a place where I'm at peace with my creator. I know the darkness of my own heart. I know the things that I have done or I know the wounds that have been done to me. And I'm not at peace with my creator apart or on my own. And Paul came to understand that through faith in Jesus, he could stand before God at peace with right standing before him. And everything else trickled down underneath that. And that's why when Jesus is the prize, that circle of friends, that relationship, that job or or pursuit of a job can bring us great joy. Why? Because two things. Number one, we're not looking for those things to give us ultimate hope. We're not looking for those things, be it a relationship or a possession or a promotion, to be our Savior. We're now seeing them as the good gifts of God that he gives us because God is a ridiculous gift giver. And we come to know Jesus, we see that God gives Jesus and then he gives and he gives and he gives. As we've said, pictured here, this morning, Paul understood that his right standing with God put everything else in perspective. He also understood, third point, that Jesus was both worth whatever the cost and came with the greatest of gifts. Paul lists three things that could be seen as, as gifts, but also one that doubles as a cost. First, he says the, suffer, or the righteousness of God is a gift that is given because of Jesus. And then he says that the power of the resurrection, that living a resurrected life because Christ has been resurrected. But then he also lists as a prize, but also the cost that we might share in his sufferings. Paul says, Knowing Jesus is worth whatever the cost because it comes with a host of gifts. And Jesus says this in Mark chapter 10 and Matthew 19, that whatever it costs us to follow him, he will will replace, as it were, a hundredfold. There is nothing that walking with Jesus in this life will cost you that Christ will not give you back either here in this life or in eternity. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, all this in heaven too. And this perhaps has a little bit more weight for those who live in places where following Jesus can cost them more than just being made fun of at work or at school. But it can cost them even up to their lives. But nonetheless, that is the hope. It's that Jesus is the prize, the Holy Spirit is the down payment or the the deposit on our salvation that we have and yet we will have in full in eternity. But the hope of God is that he will put everything to right. And it's this hope that we cling to when we lose a loved one. It's this hope that we cling to when we get that diagnosis and have to begin to have end-of-life conversations. It's this hope that we cling to when our reputation at work or at school becomes tainted because we follow Jesus and are outspoken for him. It's this hope that we cling to if our past sinful life has cost us our family or our jobs or whatever it might be. We cling to the hope that Jesus is going to put everything to right. You see, Paul understood Jesus' words. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be provided or for you or added unto you brings us to our final point. We approach Advent, the arrival of Advent, with haste and joy. We approach the arrival of Advent with the mindset that it's Jesus above all else. But I wonder this morning if we approach Advent really considering what might be the second greatest gift. 
illustratively, if we were to talk about the gifts of God beyond what we have in Christ and in salvation, we would say that Jesus goes back to heaven and he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. That we have the gift of God's word. That we have all the spiritual blessings in Christ that Paul talks about in Ephesians. That we have an eternal inheritance that will not perish, spoil, or fade that, that Peter talks about. That we have the promises of God. That we have the, the promises like he will work all things for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we could look at each one of these gifts and have almost an infinite number of the ways in which God, who is a ridiculous giver, blesses and blesses and blesses us when we are in Christ. But perhaps the second greatest gift, and that's why I've put a question mark here. You can discuss and even disagree with me over Christmas dinner if you like. But perhaps the second greatest gift that we've been given that Paul talks about in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12 and in Romans chapter 12 and the entire book of Ephesians and that Peter talks about in his first letter, perhaps the second greatest gift that we've been given is each other. It's the church. It's the ecclesia. It's the community of God's people. It's the family of God, both expressed through the local church and the church worldwide. And dare I say that I don't often view or sometimes I don't view the church as the gift that it is. The Bible talks about the church as a body, an interconnected, interdependent organism that, that needs each part. The Bible talks about the church as a bride, beautifully adorned for her bridegroom, Jesus Christ himself. And the Bible talks about the church as a family. And that is what we are. We are a new family made one in Christ. Everyone in this room who names Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is now family. So how should this family treat one another? What kind of family does God call together? Three scriptures and then an example from Jesus himself. Three scriptures. First one is Ephesians 2.19. And Paul says, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, that is, foreigners or culturally separate. He says, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of, here it is, the household of God. One family. Now Paul says this in Ephesians 2 after he spends, many of us are familiar with Ephesians 2, but the first part of this chapter talking about the fact that we've been brought near to God. And so what he's saying is that therefore we're automatically brought near to each other. Uh, this year we've been piloting a marriage ministry here at the chapel. And we've used one illustration over and over again as we've talked about marriage. It's simply a triangle. And at the top of the triangle is Jesus. And the outlying two corners are husband and wife. We've made the case biblically that as husband and wife move toward Christ, they automatically move toward each other. And we're already seeing that happen. It's exactly what Paul is saying here about the church. And God brings together a unique group of people, does he not? Listen to what D.A. Carson says in his book, Love and Hard Places, about the church. He says, what binds Christians together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. Amen? They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. It's a profound thing. Second scripture, Galatians. At the end of Galatians 6, at the end of the letter, Paul says, So then, 
as we have opportunity, as there is a, a, something that presents itself in front of us, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are, here it is again, of the household of faith. And Paul says just a little bit earlier in this chapter that those who do this fulfill what he calls the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? It's that Jesus lays down his life for his enemies. Final scripture on this score, Romans 12, 10, just just a little verse, and Paul drops drops a challenge. I think it's almost a dare. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. And interestingly, verse 10 of Romans 12 comes immediately after Paul talks about the fact that we who are many are one in Christ, that interdependent body. Well, that sounds all well and good, right? Your, your, household, your members of one household love each other, honor each other, outdo each other in honor. But how do we do that? Jesus gives us a pointed example in John 13 when he washes the disciples' feet and And uh, Zach used this example last night when he talked about one of the things that Jesus does that kind of flips the expectations. There's two things that happen in the foot washing. There's lots of things that happen in the foot washing, but there's two lessons relevant to our message this morning. One, there's two reversals. There are two reversals. The first one is a cosmic reversal, and the second is a cultural reversal. We'll read the scripture in a minute. I want you to listen for it. The cosmic reversal is that Jesus, who is God Almighty... God who parted the Red Sea, created the universe, that he stoops to the level of serving his creation. That's the cosmic reversal. The cultural reversal is a rabbi washing the feet of his disciples. Now, interestingly, at the time, if a rabbi and his disciples were gathering for something and they'd been traveling and their feet were dirty, the person who would have washed their feet would have been someone who was not in that circle at all, disciple and certainly not the rabbi. But it would have been a servant from outside of the group, someone, for lack of a better term, beneath them. And so let's listen to what happens in the upper room before Jesus' crucifixion. In John chapter 13, note the cosmic and cultural reversals. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning from God. And listen to John's language here. So he got up from the meal. Interesting that that John talks about Jesus' majesty and authority and says, so he got up from the meal. John is making a point and teaching us a point. If God will do this, well, we'll get there. Jesus, it goes on, John says, he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Skipping down a bit here to verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he said to them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. This illustration of Christ can be applied metaphorically across the board to a whole host of situations where we can serve those who are our brothers and sisters. And look as Paul exhorts us to outdo one another in showing honor. But of course, just a couple of days later, the ultimate example of God Almighty submitting himself to our redemption, to the process of our redemption, is when Jesus goes to the cross. And on the cross, 
It's where he bears our punishment. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's clear that Jesus is in anguish over what is coming in the cross. And it's likely that it has less to do with the physical torment and physical suffering as it does for the fact that he's going to bear the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and the punishment of God for my sin and for yours as well. And Jesus, by the way, little sidebar here. The wrath of God is a good thing. It's hard for us, but it is a good thing because the wrath of God means that wrong stuff will be punished one way or another. But in Christ, he is punished instead of me. And so through repentance and faith, I then, as, Paul, as we looked at in Paul earlier in Philippians, I can have right standing with God and be at peace with my maker. So in his little book that we've been following, Sinclair Ferguson says this, the Christmas story was leading to the cross from the very beginning. Christmas then is the dawn of redeeming grace. That little line that comes from Silent Night. So in his redeeming grace, God gives us the greatest Jesus, but God is a ridiculous gift giver. We've seen this morning that he gives, he gives, he gives, and he even gives us one another. So I want to try to pull all this to a conclusion this morning and remind us that we are invited to come to Jesus' arrival with haste and joy and ultimately worship. That we are to make Jesus the prize above all else that would draw and distract us, whether that be sinful temptation as well as the good gifts of this life. And that we're to honor one another as the greatest gifts that God gives. So this morning... We've got something special planned. I've been excited about this for a couple of weeks. We've taken, as a church, Paul's charge to outdo one another in showing honor, literally and seriously, this morning. You see, the gifts that surround me this morning, those that I've sought to use as an illustration of the great grace of God, of his promises, his Holy Spirit, his righteousness, his word, those gifts this morning, well, each bag up here is actually filled with gifts. And it's for each one of our brothers here from Adult and Teen Challenge, personalized to them, as well as, amen. As well as our dear sisters from Hope House who are with us today. And uh, amen. So I want to speak to each of you in turn. Brothers, you need to know that you have honored us and ministered to us in coming and singing the praises of God and leading us in worship and as well being willing to be vulnerable and to stand up on this platform and share your story, talking even about some of your greatest sins and God's work in your lives. It has ministered to this congregation in ways that I'm not even fully aware of. And my dear sisters, you are family. You are GBC. We've had the opportunity to watch your faith in Jesus grow. We've personally baptized you, and we've learned from you. And we are honored to call you family. And so we want to honor you this morning. After the service ends, we're going to invite you to come up to the, the front area here. We're going to do two things. We're going to bless you with this gift, but we're going to come together as family and just share a word of encouragement and pray together as we conclude our morning.
So just to be clear to the congregation in the room this morning, here's how this is going to work. We're going to end with a song in just a moment, and then the service will end, and you're welcome to head home and get the turkey in the oven, head to Grandma's house, whatever you're doing. Uh, But our friends from Teen Challenge and Hope House and anyone who wants to join them in front for just a time of ministering to each other, uh, encouraging one another, praying together, we welcome you to do that and to hang out for a little bit afterwards. Again, that'll happen after the service ends. But for our closing song this morning, I want to bring us back full circle to where we began. Remember, I began telling the story of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. You'll remember that uh, we talked about this 57-year-old, now widow of five children, the oldest of which who had snuck off to war, been sick all summer, and then nearly paralyzed and wounded in battle. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow on Christmas morning wrote a poem seeking to capture the conflict in his own heart and the world that he observed around him. As I've alluded to this morning, perhaps you feel the same way. Perhaps you look at the world outside of these walls and you have a sense of despair. We live in a world that is filled with heinous sin and deep division. And maybe that is within you. And you're really struggling today. And so we want to share Longfellow's poem with you this morning. You see, this poem from Christmas morning in 1863 was turned into a song, a carol, just 10 years later. We're going to end with it as our final song. As he listened to the Christmas bells ringing that morning in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he heard the singing of the line, Peace on Earth, with a nation that was at war within itself in a war that was going on in his own heart, he wrote these words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, The world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime, a peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let's stand and sing together.